This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 23rd, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Mary Caswell Stoddard talks about why bird eggs come in so many different shapes. They all do the same thing, right? And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on scientific ballooning. Uh, I've heard of weather balloons, mostly in the context of being mistaken for alien spacecraft. (laughs) But balloons actually used to do uh, the job of modern satellites. One of the first big balloon projects involved bouncing radio waves off a giant silvery balloon to connect distant points on the Earth. But But in this day and age, why would anyone want a balloon when they could have a satellite, Dave? Well, money, that's a big thing. These balloons are a lot cheaper. These satellite operations, just to not only build them, to launch them, to maintain them, can cost billions of dollars. And some of these balloons can actually be, especially these modern balloons we're talking about here, these commercial balloons, the project can be a few hundred thousand dollars. Which has attracted the eye of scientists. I think the commercial ballooning people were like, let's get people into the stratosphere. But then... Well, scientists scientists want, are interested. Yeah, scientists in this. want to get on board too, and you know, and the other advantages for scientists is the wait times to get on a NASA project can be years and years and years. And with a balloon, it may not be as long. And where are these balloons hanging out? Well, they're hanging out in the stratosphere, and this is also another sort of advantage because satellites are a lot higher up. You know, the satellites are thirty four thousand kilometers away, and for a balloon, we're talking about thirty four kilometers, so it's a thousand times closer to Earth. And one of the other nice things about the balloons is compared to the old types of balloons that you were talking about, Sarah, these new types of balloons can actually stay in relatively the same place, which allows them to sort of focus on a particular maybe weather event. Scientists are pointing them up and down. So down for things like cyclones, supercell thunderstorms, even bird and bat migrations and forest fires, but up to look at galactic formation and even exoplanets around distant stars. This is all well and good. And yes, I would prefer science balloons than a science satellite, but we're not trying to sell right. <laughs> these balloons. And, to and, 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 and in fact, they, they're, they're not uh, perfect things. I mean, they don't last as long as satellites. Satellites can last for a decade or more. These balloons stay in the air for most a few months. And so, so even though they're cheaper, we don't know how long they're actually going to be able to fly for. Now we have a story on drug-based deforestation. This study started out with 
and observation. Why were huge swaths of Honduran forests disappearing? It was obviously human destruction, but why these big indiscriminate clearings in the woods? The locals all said the same thing, drug traffickers. Right. Why would drug traffickers chop down a forest? Well, that's a great question. And the reason has to do with money laundering. You got a lot of money around. You can't spend it legally without raising a lot of red flags. So how do you funnel that money into the economy in a way to purchase something that's going to generate money for you that's going to be much more legal? And this leads to the forest clearing because what these drug smugglers are doing, or at least what these researchers think they're doing, is they're clearing these large tracts of land to maybe set up agricultural operations, livestock operations, even things like airstrips, things that they can actually use to generate a legal profit, um, and then the drug money sort of disappears. But the problem is big swaths of forest, as you said, Sarah, are disappearing, especially in countries like Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. This is all suspicion at the beginning, but what made it a study? How did they figure out that there was this connection? Well, it wasn't easy. The researchers had to get these records from the U.S. drug czar, which took years because a lot of this is kind of top secret information. They had to go to a lot of these places locally and figure out what's going on with the forest. They had to figure out what, where the correlations were because it wasn't happening in all of Central America's forests. There were forests where things, big things were being cut down that didn't seem to have any correlation with drug smuggling. But as I said, in those three countries the team did find a strong correlation. And what features kind of jumped out at them? These things are really big and they're remote, which is you would expect if somebody's trying to fly under the radar. I can think of a couple of reasons why this is bad news. One, habitat loss. What else? Well, uh, you know, we need trees to help mitigate climate change. The less trees we have, the bad, the worse that is for the climate. And it's also bad news for indigenous communities. There are a lot of people that actually live in these forests. And when you chop down the forest, they run out of places to live. Last up, we have a story on double domestication for cats. We've done double domestication for dogs. It's time for double domestication for cats. Dave, I thought all cats came from Egypt. Yeah, you and probably most of the population, this has been the standard thinking for decades, if not more, because we know the Egyptians love their cats, right? The Egyptians, cats first appeared on the walls of Egyptian tombs sometime around 4,000 years ago. When we look at the art of ancient Egypt, we see cats everywhere. We see cats with paintings. We see cat sculptures. And so everybody just assumed, well, cats must have come from Egypt. But they didn't know about the cypress cat, but which they I didn't just know about. about the cypress cat. This was a find in 2004 where researchers found a cat buried with a person in a grave in an ancient village on the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. And this grave dated to about 9,500 years ago. Now, this is thousands of years before ancient Egypt even existed. So we do know that there were cats around long before there was Egypt around. Okay, so the Cyprus cat's been around since 2004. Egypt, we've known about their cats for a very long time. <laughs> What's changed with the new data? Well, this is a new genetic analysis of more than 200 ancient cat specimens from Africa, from Europe, from the Middle East. These included cat mummies as well. And what the researchers found is there seemed to be at least, if not two domestications, two big exoduses of cats. One from the region around Turkey, which is close to Cyprus, maybe about 10,000 years ago. And this is around the time we think cats were domesticated. And one from Egypt a few thousand years after that. Now, what's really interesting is that the cats that came out of Egypt were really popular. They seem to be a lot more popular than the cats that came out of the Turkey region. They seem to be, have been adopted by a lot more people and have gotten to a, a lot more places. And the reason the scientists speculate in this study is 
twofold. One, it's possible that the ancient Egyptians actually independently domesticated cats. But it's also possible that even if they didn't, some of these original cats from Turkey came to Egypt. And because the Egyptians were doing everything on such a big scale, whether it was agriculture or what have you, they were also breeding cats on a huge scale. And what that meant is they were maybe breeding thousands, if not millions of cats and selecting for ostensibly the tamest cats, the nicest cats, the most social cats. They pretty much turbocharged the domestication process. And so even if ancient Egypt didn't initially domesticate the cat, they at least appear to have played a very strong role in shaping its personality. Okay. So let's talk about how coat color figures into all this. I mean, that also came out of the data, something about the way their appearance changed over time. Right. Well, so the really interesting about cats compared to dogs and other domestic animals like horses is it seems to have taken thousands of years for their coat color to change. As far as we know, this happened pretty early in horse domestication, and pretty early in dog domestication. So why did it take so long for cats? And one idea is people really weren't interested in what cats looked like. They were just interested in how they behaved. Be a good mouser. Be fairly social. Be cute and cuddly. I don't think we've done a good enough job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, depends who you talk to, right? And so as opposed to dogs and horses, especially with animals like horses where, you know, ownership was really important, where, you know, certain people would get get certain kinds of horses. It was really important for what the horse looked like. Wasn't as important for cats. Nowadays, we have cats of many colors and even coat lengths, um, and their personalities are pretty perfect, (laughs) depending on who you talk to. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Dave. Uh, What else is on the site? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about whether artificial intelligence can predict which congressional bills are going to pass. Also, some new astronomical findings that are casting doubt on the hypothesized planet nine in our solar system. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how the European Space Agency is going to launch a mission to detect the biggest cataclysms in the history of the universe. Also, a story about why a top mathematician has joined French President Emmanuel Macron's revolution. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crosby. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has just launched its first ever binge listening event. You're invited to binge on great listens and big savings with Audible's biggest sale ever. Enjoy all the benefits of gold Audible membership, celebrity narrated books, new podcasts and audio shows, exclusive content, and more. Join now and get a year of Audible for just $99, a $50 savings. With membership, you get audio, books, podcasts for listening offline, and you can keep them even if you at some point cancel your subscription. Members also get 30% off of additional audiobooks. Did you know Audible does exchanges for free? Sale ends June 28th, so check it out at audible.com slash binge. This episode is sponsored by Dignity Health. Dignity Health is the fifth largest health system in the U.S. and the largest in California. Their mission delivering passionate, high-quality, affordable health services for all. With a history rooted in kindness, the mission and values Dignity Health were founded upon remain the same today. Polls show that Americans want to be more mindful, to pay attention to where they are and what they're doing in the moment. But busy lives and busy brains make this very difficult to accomplish. But sometimes beating back burnout means literally just taking two minutes to yourself. Dignity Health is working to make mindfulness a practice for 39 of its hospitals, encouraging employees to set aside daily time for quiet contemplation. 
Join Dignity Health and set aside two minutes every day to check in with yourself and reflect on your relationships, work, or daily activities. To help promote this effort, share how you're making mindfulness a daily habit using the Take Two Mins hashtag. That's Take the Number Two Mins, and use it on Twitter, Facebook, whatever you're on. And by visiting dignityhealth.org/take2mins for more mindfulness research and tips. There's this quote floating around out there about how there's nothing as perfect as an egg. But the paper we're going to talk about today poses the question, well, if eggs are so perfect, what are they, why are they so different one to the next? Why are owl eggs very round and sandpiper eggs more pointy? Mary Caswell Stoddard is here to talk about what her group discovered in their quest to understand why eggs are shaped the way they are. Welcome, Mary. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, First, I want to talk about the perfection of eggs. They really are amazing. I don't think that's an overblown claim. (laughs) And, you know, eggs are the biggest cell that you will ever see. I mean, there are bigger cells, but they're buried deep in the body of giraffes and squids. Um, What else makes eggs so interesting to researchers? Well, first of all, the eggs of birds come in so many different varieties. Uh, they've got different colors, patterns, sizes, and shapes. And yet all these bird eggs have to fulfill a really specific role, and that's to nourish and protect the growing chick uh, right up until that chick hatches. So I think that eggs present a really good puzzle for researchers because there's an astonishing amount of diversity Um, despite there being a a similar function. And I'd say that uh, eggs are also fascinating because they played such an important role in the evolution of land vertebrates. And it was a a very specialized egg with a shell that allowed vertebrates to move out of the water onto land. And it's this type of egg that birds lay today. And the work you are publishing kind of relies on this long-standing obsession or fascination of researchers and naturalists with eggs. Where did this archive of egg photographs, where did they come from? Where were the eggs collected and what do they look like? Yeah, so our egg data set comes from the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology, which is based at the University of California, Berkeley. And this is one of the largest collections of eggs in North America. Most of these eggs were collected in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And using this collection, this extensive collection, we were able to analyze almost 50,000 eggs representing 1,400 species. And that's about 14% of all birds. And one of the first things you looked at when you analyzed all these egg pictures, you figured out what the world of eggs looks like to a computer, or if you were going to graph it into what you call morphospace, uh, what does it look like? What kind of parameters are eggs um, kind of constrained within? Well, that's right. We were able to map eggs, um, almost like an astronomer maps stars, in a kind of uh, shape space, which we call a morphospace. And we find that some eggs, like uh, those of owls and trogons, are almost spherical, while other eggs, uh, like those of hummingbirds, are elliptical. They look like little tic-tacs. And still other eggs, like those of sandpipers, as you mentioned, are, are asymmetric and pointy. So we find that eggs fall at these kind of extremes in the morphospace, but there are other eggs that fall almost everywhere else in between these extremes. 
And we find that the shape of a chicken egg isn't the most common egg shape. Actually, the most common shape is a little bit pointier than a chicken egg, and it looks more like um, an egg laid by a, a little warbler called a graceful prinia. So that was one surprise. Why do birds make different kinds of eggs, if we can ever answer a why question when it comes to evolution? Well, we discovered that egg shape is correlated with flight ability in birds. And we found that birds that are good flyers tend to lay eggs that are more elliptical or more asymmetric. We think that as birds' bodies became streamlined for powerful flight, this may have influenced the internal organs in a way that ultimately affect this process of egg shaping. So our idea is that to maintain a sleek body plan, birds can't lay eggs that are too wide across. So one way to pack a large volume into an egg without increasing its width is by increasing the egg's ellipticity or asymmetry. And we also think that this egg shaping process is controlled by the egg's stretchy membrane rather than by its hard shell. You say you found this correlation um, between flight and bird egg shape. What other factors did you consider might possibly have an influence or be correlated? In our analysis, we considered lots of different parameters that might influence egg shape. So we took into consideration things like the diet, uh, the nest type, the nest location, and then features of the bird's bodies like their morphologies. And, and we found that this relationship between flight and egg shape was revealed by a measure called the hand-wing index in birds. And this measure, the hand-wing index, tells us something about the bird's overall flight ability and is often related to uh, things like migration and dispersal. At the broadest level, we see this link between flight and egg shape, but of course there have to be exceptions here. Can you give some examples of those? Sure. So I think one of our most interesting exceptions uh, is penguins. And we found that penguins lay pretty pointy, asymmetric eggs. But this came as a real surprise because we expect asymmetric eggs um, like these to be associated with good flyers. And of course, penguins don't fly. So our hypothesis is that penguins' bodies have been streamlined for underwater flight, if you will, um, because they're excellent swimmers. So perhaps the same processes that influence egg shape in good flyers are also at work in good swimmers like penguins. There just seem to be so many places to go with this new finding. And what other questions are being considered with respect to eggs? Is there much known about their coloration? Well, I'd say that egg coloration is definitely a hot topic right now, with a lot of research happening on egg camouflage and egg mimicry. It turns out that in some birds, like common cuckoos, these birds can mimic the colors and patterns of eggs laid by other birds so that they can sneak their eggs into the nests of unsuspecting hosts. So as scientists, I think we're still working to understand how this complexity and diversity um, have evolved. Mary, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for inviting me. Mary Caswell Stoddard and colleagues write about the form, function, and evolution of egg shape in this week's issue of Science. Be sure to check out an accompanying visualization 
uh, that shows some examples of the data used in this study. You can find that at viz.sciencemag.org slash eggs. That's vis.sciencemag.org slash eggs. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.